Well, good morning. Uh, as Ryan already alluded to, my name is Justin, and if I haven't met you before, I would love to get to meet you. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Apostles Church, but I am a, a lay pastor, or sometimes referred to as an elder, and so you don't see me up here quite as often. Uh, but I am, it's such a joy to be able to get up here and to teach the Word of God to the gathered people. And so today, we will continue with our study through the book of Psalms. And today, as Kunman just read for us, we are in Psalm 33. Worship. What does that word call to mind when you hear it? Is it the songs that you sing at church on Sundays? Maybe you also include songs you hear on the radio, like K-Love, or perhaps your favorite Spotify or Apple iTunes, uh, Apple Tunes playlist. It seems that in many Christian circles today, the words worship and music have almost become synonymous. Even church terminology has changed over time to call the role of the music minister a worship leader or worship pastor. But worship is much more than just singing. Worship is something we do day in and day out. It's a posture of the heart. It's an act of praise. And everybody worships something. As Christians, we are the ones who worship God and worship God alone. And this extends beyond just our gathering here on Sundays to worship together. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to worship God in all we do. And the life of worship also involves assembling regularly with God's people for what we often refer to as a church service. This gathering is different than just when several Christians come together to hang out, to play a game, or to play a sport. Scripture teaches that there is a time when you come together intentionally as a church. And the whole gathering is worship, not just the singing and the music. Every aspect of the Sunday service, from the call to worship to the benediction, is an act of worship. Worship is much more than music. And I'd like to commend one book to you that I've been reading here recently that uh, my sister Choi recommended to us called What Happens When We Worship. And some of the material today I've pulled from this book, which is a wonderful picture of how we are to worship as the people of God. And if we look at Psalm 33 today, we will see that Psalm 33 is a psalm of worship. It is a psalm of worship. This psalm shows us how and why we are to worship God. And as Ryan alluded to in his pastoral prayer this morning, times are tough for many of us right now. In my own family, I know that we've struggled with various things over this last year and a half and even over just these past couple of months. So I pray that this psalm would be a reminder for us as we go through our days that God has called us to worship him, and he is worthy of it. And we are to respond in faith to God. So let's begin looking at Psalm 33 with verses 1 through 3. It reads, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. 
the first thing we see here is the call to worship. Worship doesn't begin with us, but rather it begins with God. God is the initiator of worship, just as he is the initiator of all things. Only God has the power to bring something out of nothing. We see this in creation, we see this in salvation, and we see this in worship. If you think back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God called us by his word into existence, out of nothing. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God calls us into being. And just as God called us out of the darkness in creation, he also called us from the darkness of sin and death into the light of life. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of this truth when it reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. So God is the initiator both in creation and in redemption. And Paul makes this connection between God's calling in both creation and redemption. He makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 4, where it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God calls us in creation and in redemption, he also calls us to worship him. In fact, the word often translated as church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which often means, or which means called out ones or a called out assembly or congregation. Our identity as Christians, as a church, is wrapped up in God calling us to worship. And if you've been with us for a while, you've probably noticed that we begin every Sunday morning worship service with a call to worship. It includes a reading of scripture and an opening prayer. And in a sense, it is God calling this meeting to order. It is the beginning of a covenantal conversation. God calls his people to give him the honor that is due his name. And we see that here at the beginning of Psalm 33. Now, specifically here in these verses, what is God calling us to do? Well, it seems pretty clear that it's to respond and worship through our voices, through singing. It says here that we are called to shout for joy, to give thanks to the Lord, to make melody to him, to sing to him, and to play skillfully with loud shouts. And as I studied through this text, I came to three applications that we can draw from it. First, I think we see here a command to sing enthusiastically. Second, we are to sing songs that express a wide range of the Christian life. And thirdly, we are called to sing as a gathered people. So first, we see here that we are supposed to sing with enthusiasm. We are called to shout for joy. And verse 3 says, to sing with loud shouts. Now, last week, Pastor Ryan might have been joking a little bit when he said, we're outside, I'm the only one he hears singing, but I do admit that I like to sing with enthusiasm. Not that I'm a great singer by any means, 
but what I lack in my musical ability, I make up with my volume. The psalmist here says that praise befits the upright. If you are in awe of the gospel, if you are in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will sing. We sing because we cannot be silent. If the word of Christ is dwelling within you richly, you will be unable to do anything but sing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German minister and martyr, wrote, The heart sings because it is overflowing with Christ. When we gather together here, we should not just be listening to the music as it is played or silently mouthing the words, but we should be singing with passion and zeal. So shout for the Lord. Don't let me be the loudest voice here, lest we scare away our visitors. <laughs> Secondly, I think we see a pattern here to sing songs that express a wide range of the Christian life. We are called to sing songs of praise in verse 1, songs of thanksgiving in verse 2, and to sing a new song in verse 3. I think most people, when they think of worshiping through song, think primarily about songs of praise. And our catalog is full of songs of praise or adoration. This morning, for example, we already have sung, I exalt thee, all creatures of our God and King, and great are you, Lord songs of praise and adoration, or consider the famous hymn, How Great Thou Art. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. God is certainly worthy of all of our praise and adoration. Verse 2 tells us to give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. We are also to sing songs of thanksgiving, remembering the grace and mercy that God has shown toward us. A wonderful old hymn of thanksgiving would be Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And I'm also reminded of the modern hymn, His Mercy is More, that we have sung here many times. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We are to sing songs of thanksgiving for God's wondrous mercy and grace. We are also called here to sing a new song. This doesn't mean we don't sing older hymns or songs. Rather, a new song is a song of victory, sung after God has made all things new by his defeat of the forces of evil. It means singing a song is a response to a fresh experience of God's grace in our lives. Now, in the Old Testament, this is written here in the context of warfare and Israel's defeat of her enemies. But on this side of the cross, I think the best way to interpret this is to sing songs about our victor, Jesus Christ, the one who defeated sin and death. And the victory song that first came to my mind is the uh, modern hymn, In Christ Alone. 
In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. What a beautiful reminder that song is to us of the victory we have in Christ. And while it isn't explicit here in verses 1 through 3, I also want to mention the importance of singing songs of lament. And I think we get a glimpse of this if you look forward to verse 20 of Psalm 33, where it reads, Our soul waits for the Lord. We know that Christ has not yet returned, and that God's people still experience many pains and sorrows in this life. And Pastor Ryan led us in a wonderful prayer of lament this morning. We know there is still unrighteousness and injustice. And this year, as we've gone through the book of Psalms, we recognize that there are many Psalms of lament. And they've taught us that faith means not running from God and our suffering, but running to God with our questions, our pain, and all. We need to sing songs that miserable Christians can sing, as Carl Truman put it 10 years ago. Songs that ask, how long, O Lord? Older songs like, it is well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Or a more modern hymn that we've done here many times, Lord from sorrows deep I call. Another wonderful song of lament, crying out to God in the midst of our sorrows and pains in this life. We know that the Christian life is not always joy and happiness and peace. We will all go through hard times in our lives, and we need solid, Bible-saturated, life-giving, Christ-exalting songs of lament to sing together. And so the songs we sing together here on Sunday mornings should express the full range of the Christian life. Praise, thanksgiving, Christ's victory, and songs of lament. Lastly, here in the first three verses, <clears throat> we are called to sing as a gathered people. This psalm seems to have been used during a festival of Israel renewing their covenant vows. And we can see explicitly at the end of the psalm, in verses 20 through 22, that there is a plural response. It says, our and we. It's a response of a gathered people. So this call to worship and to sing was not for an individual Christian, not for an individual person, but for a gathered people. Singing along to a Christian song on the radio in your car or at home isn't the same as singing with other Christians at a corporate worship service. And while God is the primary audience of our singing, another important thing we are doing when we sing gathered together is to sing to one another. Have you ever thought about it like that? That we are called to sing to one another. And we see this explicitly in Ephesians chapter five. Verses 18 through, 18 through 20 say, 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 19 there shows us that there is a secondary audience to our singing, one another. Corporate singing is both about praise, thankfulness, and lament to God, and at the same time, it is about the edification of the saints. Singing together is also the means of teaching and admonishing one another. So we sing not just for God, but also for each other. When we come together as a church, we are called to sing. And that really sets us apart from the rest of the culture. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you sang with a group of people other than at church? The only times that I can think of in recent memory, and it's not even that recent, um, would be at a sporting event where maybe we sang the Star Spangled Banner or Sweet Caroline or Take Me Out to the Ball Game, or perhaps at a concert where everyone knows the words to the song. But communal or group singing has more or less disappeared from American life. Nowadays, everyone has headphones and uh, ear earbuds, and they listen to their own songs. It's all in their own head. But here in the church, we are called to be different. We are called to be a people who come together and sing together. So we see here at the beginning of Psalm 33, a clear call to worship God. And we are reminded to sing to the Lord with enthusiasm, to sing songs that express the full range of the Christian life, and to sing songs together as the bride of Christ, the church, that we might not only glorify God, but love and encourage one another in the faith. And a wonderful thing about this psalm is that right after calling us to worship God, it tells us explicitly why we are to do so. Verse 4 begins with the word for, kind of like the word because. From here through verse 19, we see the cause for worship. And here the psalmist lays out four different reasons for why we are to worship God. First, we are to worship God because of his righteous character. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The first cause to worship is God's righteous character. The word of the Lord is upright. It is right and true. God never lies. In fact, he cannot lie because that would go against who he is. God's word is right, and therefore any and all of our deviations from it are wrong. We should be constantly evaluating our lives to see if we are living in accordance with his word. We are in the right when our lives agree with his word. Look at how Numbers 23:19 puts it. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see, God's word and his work are inseparable. 
He speaks and things happen. And all his work is done in faithfulness. His work is the outflow of his word. When we read the Bible, his word of promise, and then remember his faithfulness to accomplish what he has said he will do, we have reason to worship him with joy and thankfulness. And the goodness of God's character continues in verse 5. It says, God loves righteousness and justice. We live in a world that is filled with unrighteousness and injustice. But that's not who God is. God loves righteousness and justice. It pains him more than it pains us to see unrighteousness and injustice in this world. And as a perfectly holy and righteous judge, God will punish it. God will punish iniquity and transgression and sin. And he is worthy of our praise for that alone. But there's good news for us who have committed iniquity and transgression and sin. It says that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The phrase steadfast love is the Greek word hesed, which is usually referred to as a covenant love. And indeed, we know that God has a particular, selective, and effective love for his people. And this love was made manifest in God sending his only son into the world to live the life we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here in Psalm 33, it says that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And I think this one commentary I read put it well. It says, The Lord's love is evident in his works on earth. With respect to the rest of creation, he shows the same loyalty, constancy, and love that has found particular expression in the covenant relationship with his people. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And the Bible reminds us of this when it says that, the, that God clothes the grass of the fields with the glory of the wildflowers. And God feeds the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air, and not a sparrow falls from the sky apart the will of the Father. God loves all of his creation. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. We are called to worship him because of who he is, upright, faithful, just, and loving. We are also called to worship God because of his robust word, his mighty and powerful, strong and effective word. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. We see here that not only is God good, but he is all-powerful. By his word, all things were created. 
in Genesis chapter 1, we see the account of creation. And seven times we see the phrase, and God said, leading to the creation of the light, the skies, the waters and the earth, the vegetation, the stars and the moon, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth. And the crowning work of his creation was that of man and woman, created in his own image. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them by his word. Creation was as easy as a word, as a breath for God. And gathering the waters of the sea is no hard task for him. Think of the flood with Noah and the ark. God commanded the seas to rise, and they did. God commanded the seas to fall, and they did. Or the parting of the Red Sea with Moses and the Israelites escaping from Pharaoh and his army. God pulled back the waters. The Israelites walked through on dry land. And then God brought the waters crashing back down upon the Egyptians. And remember Jesus <clears throat> in the storm on the boat saying, peace, be still. And the water and the waves obeyed him. All it took was a word. In light of God's mighty power, the whole earth is called to fear the Lord. There is no one like him. No false God, no little G God can compare. All those who worship another so-called God or no God at all should at least fear Jehovah for his mighty power. They should at least tremble at the infinite power of a thunderous God. But for those of us who are called by his name, this should be cause for worship. I can't help but be reminded of one of my favorite verses, Revelation 4.11, which says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The act of creation is reason enough to worship God. We are to worship him because of his robust, powerful word. The third cause for worship we see here in Psalm 33 is God's rule and reign. God's rule and reign. And we see this in verses 10 through 15. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The God who created the heavens and the earth also rules it according to his own purposes. In creation, God spoke, and things happened according to his will. And so it is after creation. Just as we read that God controls the waters, so too does God control the affairs of man. There is no earthly power able to oppose God's will. 
People make plans. I know my last year and a half wasn't supposed to look like this, but it's God who controls the outcome. Not us, nor any earthly ruler, no matter how powerful, determine the outcome. God is the one who rules and reigns over all things, and for that he is worthy of our worship. And in verse 12, we see that while God deserves the love of all mankind and rules over them all, there is a particular people whom he has chosen as his heritage, the nation of Israel. And we see this love manifested throughout the Old Testament. But we also know from the call of Abram in Genesis 12 that the nation of Israel was called to be God's means by which the whole world would come to know him. They were to be a blessing to all nations. This is yet another reason why he is worthy of our worship. It says, The Lord sits enthroned high over all the inhabitants of the earth. He is all-seeing, all-knowing. Nothing happens in secret. Nothing can be hidden from him. While it may seem like he is distant, far away up in heaven, he remains intimately concerned with his creation. God is not some deity who spoke creation into existence and then decided just to sit back and watch what happened. It says that he fashions the hearts of all the inhabitants and observes all their deeds. God rules and reigns over all and he is worthy of our worship for it. Now, the last reason or cause for worship that we see here is God's redeeming rescue, his redeeming rescue. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Salvation doesn't come from earthly power and might. True salvation, deliverance from death, comes from God alone. The greatest kings, the biggest armies, and the mightiest warriors are helpless without God. Think back to the exodus from Egypt. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had finally let the enslaved Israelites go after the death of the firstborn sons. But shortly after they left, Pharaoh changed his mind. He said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers appointed over them. And chariots were a huge advantage on the battlefield, and Egypt knew how to use them. And 600 was an enormous number to be sent out against what appeared to be a wandering and trapped group of slaves. There is no doubt that Pharaoh was quite confident in his imminent victory. But that's not how the story ends, because God was with his people. 
rather than being saved by his war horse <clears throat> and great army, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea when the waters returned and covered them. Don't put your hope in your own strength, in your good health, or in your riches. Worldly things are a false hope for salvation. Put your hope in God. Salvation comes from him alone. While his gaze extends to all the earth, it says his eye is particularly on those who fear him. And parents, I'm sure you can relate to this. When you take your child somewhere like the playground or the beach, you set up there and your child goes off to play. And you sit there and maybe you're in conversation with another parent and your eye is on all that is happening. You see people coming and going, kids here and kids there. But your eye is particularly focused on your child, just as your ear is particularly focused on their cry. It's your job to watch over them and to keep them safe. And it's like that we see here with God. And ultimately, his eye is on his children to deliver them from death. God's people under his protection, are safe. He can deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine, even when disaster seems just around the corner. And even if he does not deliver the body from physical death, surely he will deliver the soul from spiritual and eternal death. He is our redeeming rescuer, and we are to worship him for it. We are called to worship God because he is worthy of it, because he is a good God, mighty and powerful in word, sovereign over all, and the only deliverer from death. What should be our response to these wonderful truths? Let's see verses 20 through 22. It reads, Our soul waits for the Lord, he is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So finally, we see here the conclusion to worship. Not the end to worship, for worship has no end. Rather, I mean conclusion in the sense of the decision or the verdict or the response to the call and the call to and the cause for worship. The psalm here takes a decisive turn, switching to the first person plural. In light of the call to and cause for worshiping God, God's people cannot but respond with a life of genuine and joyful worship. And this worship can be boiled down to three basic instructions. Wait, trust, and hope. We wait for him. Why do we wait for him? Because he is our help and our shield. He is the one who initiates the action. Before you try to take things into your own hands, turn to him in prayer. Cry out to him for help. Be still and rest in God. Wait on him. And we trust in his holy name. 
We trust that he's going to come and deliver us. He is powerful to deliver us, and he loves us too much not to. Our hearts are glad because we trust in him. Now, we usually like to rejoice after something has been done. But here we rejoice because we know that we can trust God to do what he has promised to do. Remember, his work is synonymous with his name. When we rejoice while waiting, it shows that we trust in him. And lastly, we worship in hope. We don't say, let your steadfast love be upon us because of all that we have done. Rather, we say, let your steadfast love be upon us because we hope in you. We're not hoping in ourselves or what we can accomplish. God showed us his steadfast love most clearly in sending Jesus Christ into the world. And when our hope is in him, in Christ alone, his steadfast love is upon us. Is your hope in Jesus Christ today? Just as God called you into being, he has called you to worship him, for he is worthy of it. His word is upright. He loves righteousness and justice. He is full of steadfast love. He is all-powerful, creating the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth. He is the sovereign God, the ruler over all creation. And he is the only one who can rescue you from death and famine. Put your hope in Christ and worship him alone. He is worthy of it. Let's pray.